On April 17th, Mark Moore of Harvard Kennedy School spoke about his new book, Recognizing Public Value. Ash Center director Tony Sage, Tiziana Deering of Boston Rising, and Stephen Goldsmith of the Ash Center served as respondents. The event was sponsored by the Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, well, I'd like to welcome everybody uh, to uh, this book launch uh, that uh, we're hosting uh, together with Mark here. Um, I'll introduce our two commentators uh, in a moment. Um, let me just by way of a start say that there were three things amongst the many things that impressed me uh, with uh, the new book of Mark's. Um, it actually detracted me from a talk that I was meant to be uh, uh, writing yesterday afternoon as I started reading it thinking, oh, I'll spend five minutes and I can probably think of a couple of things to say. By about 10 o'clock in the evening, I was still reading it. And <laughs> so anyway, the first is that I've kind of got fed up plagiarizing creating public value, uh, which I've been doing for years now for the executive teaching that I've been doing for government officials from China and Indonesia. So I want to thank Mark for giving me some new things uh, to plagiarize uh, from this uh, latest work of his. There were two things, though, that struck me as extremely important uh, in this book. And I look at this not from having worked in the government sector, but from having worked in the not-for-profit sector for a number of years. And there were two areas of work that I always found problematic and disturbing. And I think Mark's new book goes much of the way to beginning to help us think about those challenges. And the first is the whole issue of evaluation. In the not-for-profit world, and I think probably in a lot of worlds, um, we think a lot about what goes into the policy-making process. We now all know about stakeholder analysis. We know how to think about that. We think a lot about how policies were made. And then Merrily uh, Grindle and John Thomas reminded us, yes, but what happens when you actually come to implement uh, policies? And it seems to me that was then the second stage where a lot of work focused on how do you then actually implement the policy once it's made? And that was very much a forgotten part of the world. But where I saw it from when I came into working in the practical sphere was how do we think about the value that we're trying to create? And we have very, very weak mechanisms for evaluation of projects. I would say pretty much abysmal on the whole. And it was always something that worried me deeply when I worked at the Ford Foundation that we were giving money out for worthy projects, but we didn't think enough about what was being created, how would we value it. And I think even across other agencies, World Bank, UNDP, there were similar problems with that. So people then began to start looking at evaluation. But then this led into what I see as the second, I suppose my third point, of the major informative uh, things which Mark brings up in his work was that not surprisingly, when people thought about evaluation and even structuring the implementation of projects, they tended to turn to the private sector. And we all know, you know, the list of things of why the private sector, why contracting out, why doing public-private partnerships supposedly gives us more focus, gives us more efficiency in delivering public services and so on and so forth. But it always worried me, and it always worried me with a sort of sense that I do believe the not-for-profit sector, the government sector, and the private sector are qualitatively different beasts. 
but I'd never really been able to think about it systematically. I never actually bothered thinking about it systematically. I suppose it's closer to the truth. But what is really great in Mark's new work, and for those of you who haven't read it, it really is tremendously insightful through the cases that he uses in that work, is beginning to think about what, in terms of private practices, might or might not work in the public sector. And I, if you don't read any of the other cases, I would recommend that you read the case about the origins of CompStat and Bratton and the New York Police Department. It's a fantastic chapter which really explores a lot of these questions in detail. And I think what Mark begins to explore through the book is this issue of instead of private um, mechanisms, is there something like a public value scorecard or a public account scorecard, whatever you want to call it. Now, I'm not going to go into that because obviously this is what you're here to listen from Mark before I plagiarize it, and plagiarize it I will. Uh, as you all know, uh, Mark is here with us as the Hauser Professor. He's been also the head of the Hauser Center. He also has a joint appointment with the Graduate School uh, of Education. Uh, Mark will speak first, and then we're very lucky to have two commentators uh, following up with Mark, and I'm just looking for their titles so as I don't get them wrong. First of all, we'll ask uh, Tiziana Deering uh, to make some comments. As many of you will know, Tiziana was uh, executive director of the Hauser Center for many years. Having left that, she's gone into a role of consultancy work, and she is uh, a startup chief executive officer of Boston Rising. But I'm glad, uh, looking at her CV, to see that she's seen the light. And we'll start shortly at Boston University. Boston College, I'm sorry. Boston College is an associate professor in the Graduate School of Social Work. So we're excited to bring her back to the fold where she'll be looking at social innovation and leadership. And then we'll have comments from someone else who's seen the light uh, hopping in and out of government. And I think Steve uh, represents, Steve Goldsmith, represents, I think, the best traditions of the Kennedy School, someone who's deeply engaged in public service, has deep uh, practice in those fields, having served as the mayor of Indianapolis, talking of plagiarism. I teach one of his cases often in our training programs, and have also stolen many ideas from Steve about public-private partnerships, network governance, and so forth. He also, as you know, served a turn as a deputy mayor of New York. But why I say I think Steve represents what is good about the Kennedy School, he combines both that deep commitment to public service but also thinking about how do you bring the experiences of public service through a university setting, setting to a much broader uh, uh, set of uh, observers. As you know, Steve directs our um, innovations uh, program. He's also now uh, overseeing the mayor's initiative and most recently has been very involved with projects around the questions of uh, data analytics. So I think with that, you know that we're going to have a very interesting afternoon. And let me first turn it over to Mark to start off with some comments. Thank you very much, Tony. I think I have oh, my own microphone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much uh, for coming. I'm delighted to see uh, many criminal justice folks in the crowd. I'm delighted to see many of my colleagues. And I'm most delighted to see some of my students here. I thought they might have had enough of me in the classroom, but the fact that they're prepared to come out and uh, listen to uh, me again uh, is uh, wonderfully encouraging to me. Um, I'm a little anxious about standing up and presenting this book to you. Uh, uh, 
Hegel once uh, wrote that uh, the terrible thing about being an artist was that as soon as you finished the piece of art, you gave it away and it was appropriated by everybody else and you couldn't control the way they thought about and used the work. Uh, and so there's always this exquisite pain when you finally give up control of uh, the page and turn it over to the uh, people who you meant to uh, try to help understand it. I should say that for those of you who have followed uh, my work over the years, you probably won't find a lot new in this, in the sense that um, the way I understand it is that it's sort of a, uh, a recapitulation of the argument of creating public value uh, made a little bit more clearly and a little bit more deeply. And then there's this important piece that I've added, which is um, in response to a challenge that sort of said, yeah, okay, Professor, you talk about public value. How could we recognize it when we see it? Um, and so this felt like an important challenge, and I've tried to add that to, uh, the, uh, to this particular book. As I say, so those of you who've read it will be on familiar territory. Those of you who haven't followed my work will probably find the lecture completely befuddling. Uh, but that's good news, because we're here to sell books. And I want to reassure you that all the answers are in the book, all right? So that if you uh, feel a little bit startled or confused, uh, I recommend we, uh, you get the book, and it'll sort you out. Um, so um, I want to start with this basic, there's a lot of different ways to enter this subject, but I think the easiest way to enter it is to start with this fundamentally uh, idea that uh, we would like to have a bottom line for government. And I think that if you listen to the public discourse and have listened to it for as long as I have, there's this terrific desire out there in the world for someone to establish and use a bottom line for government. And I think the reason for that is that people want simplicity, they want objectivity, and they want finality in sort of the discussion about whether public policy uh, is good or bad, whether it's doing things well or badly. And they'd like to know the answer to that question uh, with objectivity, with simplicity, and with, uh, 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 and with finality in order to be able to resolve what otherwise seemed endless uh, political debates and endless quibbles and endless uh, worries about very things. So there's a desire for uh, conclusiveness. Um, I want to put a caution there, though, to say that in my research on this and my observation of things in the world, uh, actually people are much more enthusiastic about this idea in theory than they are in practice. All right? And what I keep noticing is that all the people who are in constitutionally in a position to demand accountability and get it and demand a bottom line and stuff like that turn out to be a little shy when you offer them one. Um, and I think the reason that the political overseers are a little bit shy about that is A, they're not all that enthusiastic about discovering that they're failing, all right? And B, they're not all that enthusiastic about having their discretion limited to a limited number of things that they could talk about. So, we would ordinarily think there would be a discipline in a corporate board, for example, that would say, uh, look, we'll look and see what you guys produce financially, and that'll be what we talk about. And we're not going to talk about a lot other than that. But you can't actually create that same kind of discipline in uh, the oversight of a political uh, public agency by politicians, because they would like to reserve their option to uh, raise issues that they hadn't previously told you was important. Right? So, uh, so one feature of that. So even though they say they want simplicity, objectivity, and finality, there's a piece of me that wants to say, I wish that were true. Because if that were true, everything I'm going to say from now on would be much easier than it actually turns out to be. Right? Um, and what we've noticed then is that if we have this demand, we have these surges of demands for accountability. And I have a general rule that sort of says, 
the political enthusiasm and support for performance measurement is always about one-third of the amount of time and effort it would take to produce an effective system. And the consequence of that is that long before the system is up and operating, the wave has receded and leaves behind a little pocket of uh, performance accountability left in an organization. And it's always kind of a sad situation. It's a little guy in an office, and he's producing reports, and nobody's paying attention to them anymore. I know. I was one of those guys on uh, stage. And so it's, you feel abandoned all right, once you've uh, sort of made this semi-heroic effort to uh, create something that could do the job of creating a, um, uh, 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 a bottom line. Now, um, so this drive for simplicity, I think, is very important. As you may have seen, Cass Sunstein is coming to give a talk on his new book, which is on simplicity in government, all right? And I'm glad he's not here to hear this talk, uh, because uh, one of the things that I uh, want to say is, yes, of course we want uh, simplicity. Yes, of course we want objectivity. But we can't get there right away. It's going to take a little bit of time. And there's a wonderful quote by uh, Justice that sort of said, I, wouldn't, I don't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. All right? And this, I think, is an important idea, particularly in this field, because the challenge is going to be to wade through the thickets of complexity in order to get arrive at a place or is it at least plausible that we could have uh, the kind of conversation we imagine having uh, about the performance of uh, government organizations. So I'm going to introduce you to the thicket, and then we're going to uh, sort of see whether we can see what the other side would look like. Now, when, an easy place to start then, of course, is to start with, well, it's analogy. Uh, bottom line in the private sector, this is the income statement, is profits equals revenue minus costs. And I suppose if we were thinking about the bottom line in the public sector, it would be something like net public value equals socially valued results minus costs. And that would be sort of the straightforward uh, accounting statement of that. Now, the key problem in the public sector is how to measure socially valued results. And I want you to understand that in the public sector, we can have all the same cost information that they have in the private sector. All right? There's no particular reason why we can't do is uh, recognize cost and attribute it to activities and uh, calculate the average and marginal costs of a variety of different activities that are being carried out in government. Steve uh, was a pioneer in sort of getting government to do a lot of what came to be called activity-based accounting. Uh, so our problem is how to measure socially valued results. Now, and I, just before we leave this, I want you to mourn with me for a minute the fact that we don't have what the public private sector has namely a revenue figure that is generated by the sale of products and services to willing customers. All right? Now, this turns out to be an enormous difference between the public and the private sector. So when you think about it, and each one of these should be like an arrow piercing your heart that sort of says, uh, this is uh, for if I were hoping to get a simple idea. So the first idea is that a revenue is a direct measure of value if value means what individuals are willing and able to pay for. All right? And in most liberal democratic systems, the individual is the important arbiter of value. And they reveal behaviorally and objectively how much they value things by plunking their money down. And if you said, where do you guys in the private sector get off uh, selling lemon-scented furniture polish and hula hoops with all the trouble we got in the world, they have a perfectly good answer to that, which is that people want it. So there's an unequivocal representation of value at some level, as long as we accept the value as what individuals want and are willing to pay for. 
It also, revenue compares the value of different products and services in the same currency. So we don't have to, we wouldn't have to figure out police versus uh, education versus uh, blah, blah, blah. We would have the comparisons made directly for us and we'd be able to allocate across the various product lines of government. It allows one to compare the value being produced to the cost in exactly the same currency. So we can see the net addition. This is, I think, a terribly important one too, is that information about the value is being generated right at the boundary of the organization at the point of sale. We don't have to follow up and see whether the person used the good or the service in a particular way and it had a particular effect and stuff like that. We just, as soon as the transaction's completed, we know whether uh, some value was uh, created or not. And we have centuries of experience with developing and using uh, financial measures of, uh, of financial uh, performance. So just pause on this one for a minute because we have to be sad together <laughs> and then get over it, right? that there isn't an equivalent of a revenue for a, uh, for a public sector organization. It just isn't, right? So then the question is, what the hell are we going to do uh, if we don't have this, right? Um, and um, incidentally, just before we go to this one, it's kind of fun to think about is, suppose you were running an automobile manufacturing company, and I told you you could have all the money, all the information you wanted about cost. Uh, you just couldn't have any of the information about the revenue earned by the sale of the product. What would you do? You're in there, you're trying to create something of value. You know what your costs are. Uh, you can't get the revenue numbers. Uh, what do you do? What do you think you'd do if you were in that situation? Keep the try to keep the cost down and not worry too much about it. Uh, but of course, there's always the possibility that you ride the cost down and the product value of the productivity falls even further. What else would you do? Develop some indicators. And what would those indicators be? Usually people will say things like, well, we could go ask the uh, people about whether they like the cars, right? We could uh, check and see how often the cars were driven, right? We could uh, have an engineer tell us whether it was a good car or not, right? And as I go down that list, what do you notice? These are all the methods that we use in government to try to figure out whether something of value is being created, right? So this, the, the fundamental problem here is this uh, construction of an alternative uh, to a revenue measure. Now, I confess that when I came to the Kennedy School in 1969, I came partly because I thought we would have the answer to this. I came to learn from my uh, teachers here how to recognize the public value of public policies. Uh, and so when I came here, I learned about program evaluation. Uh, I learned about benefit-cost analysis. Uh, and those were the two principal things I learned at the beginning. And those looked pretty good in some ways because there was a theory behind them and people knew how to do them and stuff like that. But then if you asked anybody, did you mean that we should run public agencies by doing program evaluations and benefit cost analyses on a monthly or quarterly basis, all right? The answer was no, nobody meant that, all right? The best thing we were gonna do in a program evaluation was a, a program here and there that would be evaluated and we were gonna do a benefit cost analysis. So these were tools for measuring the value of particular public policies, right, that might be important for allocation decisions about whether we went into or out of a particular business. But they weren't instruments that were designed to help you run and manage an organization to uh, drive down cost and increase the quantity and quality and value of production. So there was something that was missing. So then uh, along came this idea that what we really needed to do was to measure client satisfaction uh, and that that would substitute as an alternative for value recognition. 
And this is where my peculiar background as a criminal justice guy comes in. Because I, people, when people were talking about um, uh, customer-oriented government, I was thinking about all the organizations that I knew best, which included uh, police and courts and prisons and tax collecting agencies and uh, regulatory agencies. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't think the people that are being encountered by those organizations think of themselves as getting services, right? Uh, and more serviced is more like it, right? Uh, and then the question was, is, well, if we were having obligation encounters, how the hell were we going to measure the value or understand the value of an obligation encounter when it was clear that the goal was not to make the person happy? It had to be something different than that. It had to be something like get the person to come into compliance so that I could achieve something else, right? Um, using the smallest amount of uh, money and authority to accomplish the result, something like that. So this one uh, turned out. The compliance uh, method of sort of evaluating performance, we all understood was bad because we didn't know whether we could ship. This was a powerful one because we could do audits of policies and procedures. I spent part of my life in DEA when I was working there doing compliance audits of, um, uh, of uh, units of DEA in terms of compliance with their policies and procedures. And that was good for the purposes of generating uh, confidence that we weren't losing money. It was good in the sense that it assured the likelihood that we would be treating like cases alike, all right? But it had no obvious connection to our ability to create value because none of us knew whether the procedures we're using were the ones that actually used the smallest amount of resources to achieve uh, the most desired results, right? Um, so these were all ways to think about how to demand and get accountability and performance in the public sector. And when you ran through the list, it was kind of a, in the end, it was kind of like you didn't have much to hold on to. So what I decided when I wrote this book then was to do something called the strategic uses of performance measurement. And the first principle of being strategic, I've learned this over my years. When I was young, I thought that strategic meant finding great opportunities and exploiting them immediately for short run gain, all right? I discovered there aren't very many of those, all right? Uh, so what I've now learned is that being strategic means being patient which means having a sustained commitment and investment, not a quick fix. And then also to engage in continuous learning and adaptation, not constant. So if you're trying to get quickly to a set of performance measures, chances are you're not going to be able to get there because we're looking for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. It's also important to focus on valued results, by which we mean outcomes, and important part of what the world of public policy contributed uh, to the world of public administration was the focus on outcomes and the achievement uh, rather than simply the, uh, the working out of a set of bureaucratic routines whose value we weren't uh, entirely clear about. But it was important not to focus exclusively on the outcomes because there were intrinsically important valued features of the process that we were interested in as well as the outcomes. So the people cared a lot about whether like cases were treated alike. They cared a lot about the particular nature of the uh, encounter. And this one was a really big one for me, that in some ways, the government never quite got the idea of investment, it doesn't seem to me. Um, they have an idea of a capital budget and an operating budget, and a capital budget usually meant big buildings and stuff like that. But they never quite had the idea that you spent money now on something, and then uh, costs went down in the future, and you reap the benefits for a long time, and we were only going to manage that investment for, you know, for a limited period of time. So, uh, and if you were going to do that, and if you were going to manage it, 
what you would be doing is managing a process of investment rather than an anticipating the desired results, rather than getting those expected results right away. And then that you'd have to adapt to the changing environment that was uh, both the political environment of collective aspirations and the task environment of changes that were happening to you. Now, so far, what I've put in front of you then is a demanding task. And the move through complexity, it seems to me, requires you to do these four different kinds of work. Um, philosophical work, which has to do with identifying the important normative values that you're trying to pursue. Political work, which has to do with aligning the uh, concepts and measures of value with what the real political aspirations of the overseers and the population are, influenced by, but not identical necessarily, with the philosophical work that you've done. You had to do the technical work to develop concepts and measures that would identify in the empirical world the degree to which you had actually succeeded in achieving uh, conditions that were uh, given uh, normative value. And then there was the managerial work, um, not only of developing the measures, but also the uh, managerial work of putting them to use in the execution and uh, management of a uh, value-creating strategy for the organization. And my theory was that an awful lot of sort of efforts to measure performance had failed because they had principally thought that the problem was here on the technical work or here in the managerial task. And they hadn't paid adequate attention to the question of doing the philosophical work, which would accurately identify value, nor the political work, which would align uh, the measurement system with a uh, set of expectations and demands that would give the manager a chance to uh, bring those conditions into, uh, into real life. So as I thought about this, of course, I discovered that this mapped rather neatly onto uh, the uh, work I'd done previously, which what was, yeah, what a surprise. Uh, if you got a uh, hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so here's my particular hammer. Um, and so when you think about these different kinds of work, you can imagine that the public value work, uh, when you think about it, you sort of say, well, okay, I'm a manager here, and I'm trying to figure out how and in what particular ways I'm going to use performance measurement. And one answer to that is I'm going to use it to give a clear operational definition of what constitutes value. I'm going to descend from the rhetorical heights of uh, philosophy, and I'm going to uh, embody those philosophical ideas in a particular set of concrete measures. right? And that will increase the clarity that I have about what constitutes public value, and will make it more possible for me to calculate exactly how it is that I'm planning to produce that. Um, it would also help me, if I were uh, thinking about performance measurement, to build legitimacy and support, because developing the measures would respond to what I knew would be part of the requirements of the authorizing environment, which would, people would expect me to be accountable. And if I could speak to them in the terms that they were concerned about, then presumably, and meet their demands for accountability, then presumably they would reward me as a manager with a reasonable amount of uh, legitimacy and support. And it would also help me animate and guide the operational capabilities, and it would also help me learn, because the way to learn would be to vary a little bit of what I was doing in the operation, and that would produce different results, and it would be through that path that I could learn uh, what things would go well. So to operate here, uh, you, to, as a strategic manager, you had to have uh, an idea about what, it, what public value was, and that, public val that idea had to satisfy the philosophical and technical demands here, the political demands here, and the managerial demands here. And it was only, again, when you got all of those things 
lined up that you would have something that could do the work that we wanted to do. Now, so then at this stage, so we've got a picture now that says we want a bottom line. We know that it's going to be a little bit complicated to get done because we've got these four different kinds of work we've got to do. And now, uh, so that's all okay. But now some really tough stuff happens, all right? And what this is about is the particular place I'm located, what, what happens when I'm located in the government, right? Now, this is a little bit different than in the nonprofit. Many of the things that I will talk about here are for, as true for nonprofits as they are for government. But one of the things that's, uh, and this one, for example, is that in government, when we look at, when we describe what value it is that we're going to try to produce, we often end up describing material conditions in the world that are hard to monetize. We don't exactly know how to convert them, the conditions in the world, to some kind of cash value, right? And a huge amount of effort goes into trying to monetize those things. And I will tell you that my own feeling about it is that effort mostly distorts the information rather than clarifies it. I think if you gave me a choice between simply having a description of what the effect was in concrete terms or have that transformed by somebody's elaborate method to try to monetize it, I'd pick the first for clarity over the uh, second. So I think we waste a lot of time trying to monetize uh, stuff. This is a really a big deal, though, and again, much more for the public sector or for government than for the private sector, that the arbiter of value is not individual customers or clients, but a collective, the authorizing environment, that defines social purposes that was worth taxing and regulating themselves to produce. Right? So in the New York City case, the person that is defining the value right, isn't just the uh, person calling the police, isn't just the person being arrested by the police, isn't just the taxpayer who's footing the bill. Right? It is a body politic that is saying, this is what we would like to see, the values that we would like to see produced by and reflected in a police department. And then the challenge of constructing a performance measurement system is to make that performance measurement system as closely aligned with that set of ideas as we uh, possibly can. This then is also related to this next one, which is really a pain, which is that the state often uses authority to accomplish purposes as well as money. So that when we're doing the public value accounting, we can account for the cost. But the other asset that we're often deploying is an asset that could be called public authority. And when we're deploying public authority, um, one way we're doing it is I'm saying to you, I need you to do something or to stop doing something, all right? And I'm not going to pay you for it. I'm, uh, I may try to persuade you that you should do it as a matter of public spirit. But in case you don't get the message, I'm going to require you to do that. And in that moment, what I'm doing is, in effect, drafting you into a piece of work right, that is on behalf of the public, refraining from doing something you'd otherwise be inclined to do or doing something that you wouldn't be inclined to do. Authority also shows up in service delivery organizations. And the way it shows up in uh, service delivery organizations is that uh, we use authority in those organizations to ration access uh, to services. So uh, if you ask the question, why are all those regulations out there that say who's entitled and who's not, the answer is we wrote into the legislation an idea of justice using uh, those particular uh, categories, and we use that to ration. And then, because state authority, it's like there's an important point here, of course, which is that all the money that government gets, or most of the money that government gets, comes from the use of authority. Right? And if we're using authority, then every time that authority is engaged, we have to be concerned about the equity and fairness and justice of our use of those assets, as well as efficiency and effectiveness. So this automatically creates a more complicated uh, normative framework in which to consider things. 
So here's the effort to construct what we call a public value account, the, the equivalent, the functional equivalent of a bottom line for government. And you would start uh, where it's handy to start, which is with the dollar cost to government. And you'd look over here on the value side of the ledger, and you'd see mission accomplishment. Now I should say, uh, and then you might also have in there an idea of client satisfaction, subject to the qualifications that I've just made. But fundamentally, then you could say, ah, what the dollar, the basic bottom line is dollars per unit of mission accomplishment, with or without a qualification on whether our clients are satisfied or not. But I wanted to add this line, unintended cost and unintended benefits, because this concept of mission has an ambiguous relationship to effects of an organization that are valuable in a particular situation. All right? And what happens is that some organizations have a mission that identify values 1, 2, and 3, but they're producing effects 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. All right? And so then the interesting question is, is, well, what do we do with those effects 4 and 5? And in some cases, what has happened is that the relative importance of effects 4 and 5 have become greater than the original mission. Right? And in that moment, you can imagine the organization changing its mission to accommodate the uh, new value that's uh, now become important uh, in the world. And so I wanted to get this idea that the relationship between mission on the one hand and value on the other was uh, affected by uh, the fact that the things that the organization did often ended up producing results in dimensions other than those that were nominated and defined in the original mission. Finally, that we were going to use the authority by government, and that was going to require us to talk about the fair and just use of public money and authority, uh, as well as uh, whether we achieved the mission or not. So at this stage, we're almost to the end. Um, I, I realized that I had gotten to the place where I first thought I wanted to be, and the only place I thought I needed to be, which was I now got a good bottom line for the public sector, or at least conceptual outline of that. All right? So I thought, ha, there. And then I suddenly realized that all these questions about implementation and blah, blah, blah were still there. And I had been read and been influenced by a book by Robert Kaplan. All right? And one of the things that Robert Kaplan said, and this came as big news to the, both the nonprofit and the government world, he said, businesses cannot run themselves on financial measures alone. Right? They have to use process measures as well as financial measures. Well, this was an accountant a big accounting professor at the business school, for God's sake, saying process measures were important, not just financial measures. Nonprofit world went crazy, right? Finally, we've got somebody who understands what our problem is. We'll start doing balanced scorecards for the nonprofit world because we have these effects that are hard to monetize, right? And all that sort of stuff. Well, it turned out that wasn't what Kaplan had in mind at all, although later, when he saw the market, he shifted there. But, but what he basically said, and he was, was in the, in the, uh, when he was working in the for-profit area, what he discovered and made a very strong and interesting point, which was, he said, look, the problem with financial measures is that they're all in the past. And all the important government business decisions are about the future, right? And so if we want to, and the way that we decide how to create value in the future in business is by having a strategic story about how we're planning to reposition the organization to create value. And if we're going to do that, we need to have some measures that will allow us to reposition the organization and check our progress in making that happen. I thought, oh my god, uh, this is what, exactly what we now need to do in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the public sector. And so instead of using the business model of strategy, I incorporated my own model of strategy in the public and the nonprofit sector. 
And so Kaplan says there's a financial perspective for business, and I say there's a public value account, which we just talked about. Kaplan says there's a customer perspective, where you have to think about where you are vis-a-vis -vis your customers and whether you're well positioned. I think there's something called the legitimacy and support perspective, where you have to position yourself against a political authorizing environment that's making uh, claims on you. He says there's an operational perspective, and I say there's an operational capacity perspective that focuses on this critical question of exactly how you're deploying the assets to achieve the desired results and what combination of investments and disinvestments you're making to reposition the organization for performance uh, in the future. He says there's a learning perspective, and my own view, and, but his learning perspective is primarily around the learning of the new technologies. And my feeling is that there's all of these things we keep, we'll keep learning about. So that as we start trying to build a public value scorecard for a public agency, our idea of the public value account is going to change, our idea about what the legitimacy and support perspective is is going to change, and our operational capacity perspective is going to change. Now this is a uh, busy slide uh, with what is described as the legitimacy and support perspective. And what this is is essentially the naming of a set of conditions in the world in the authorizing environment that one would have to monitor on a continuous basis to see whether one's legitimacy and support was going up or down. Okay? And that this then becomes the focus of a political management effort by the agency to try to make sure that it stays reasonably well positioned with respect to its authorizing environment. Okay? This is the operational capacity perspective, and this is the naming of certain conditions in the world that you have to monitor to see whether your organization is performing well or badly, and whether the investments that you plan to make to reposition the organization are being carried out or not. Okay. So this is, uh, in the end, where I want to leave us then, is in this place where uh, you say, look, I'm trying hard to create a bottom line for public sector organizations. I know that a lot of the effects of public sector organizations are non-monetary or conditions in the world that would be hard to monetize. I know I'm using the authority of the state. I know that I'm going to have to change what my organization is now doing. I know that I'm going to have to learn as I go along. All right? What kind of framework would I have to bring to bear uh, to begin the process of uh, working my way through the complexity to get to the simplicity on the other side? So this concept of the public value scorecard and the public uh, value account are the things that I've offered to try to help people work their way through that complexity. Thank you very much. There's a whole lot in that. Uh, and I'm not even going to try to be sort of fully linear. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've done is pull out my couple of points you want to make. Six or seven things uh, mm -hmm. that I'm going to quickly go through. Uh, three caveats. One, um, I've spent m the majority of my career in the nonprofit sector, not the government sector. So there will be many times when I'm probably even secretly colored by that, and it's it's coming out. And let me just be very clear about that up front. Two, I've also spent the majority of my nonprofit career working in systemic uh, long-term poverty. Um, I'm fairly grumpy about uh, the success that we've had in that field in the last 40 years, um, but think constantly about the types of systemic challenges, and that will also influence this. Lastly, I actually got my start in Boston working for Dave Norton, who was Bob Kaplan's original partner in developing the Bellic Scorecard, doing Fortune 500 Balanced Scorecard consulting in Boston and around the country, and then later trying to bring balanced scorecards to nonprofit organizations as, as my client. So I've done quite a bit of the practical application there, as well as built scorecards in the, in, at Catholic Charities when I took over Catholic Charities and with Boston Rising. So 
a lot of very deep experience with how that happens on the ground, and that's, that's going to sort of color what I have to say as well. First, um, just a couple of key kudos, I think. One, I've been very concerned over the last few years about our desire to collapse our three sectors in our economy, the public, the private, and the nonprofit, into one, as opposed to finding a roadmap or an overlay that you can put across all of them and keep them as three distinct and precious uh, different sectors. That there's definitely, I think, an overwhelming push to collapse, that everything looks, acts, and smells like the private sector. And anything that might allow us to take a single tool but apply it to three distinctive sectors with three distinctive sets of value propositions and characteristics, I think is only helpful especially because our future leaders and our future in innovation really is in your ability to seamlessly move across those sectors over time, but that can't by, be by trying to make them look and act all the same. They have different value propositions, one's for the private good, one's for the collective good, one is the space in between, which is, uh, you know, I think the nonprofit sector largely exists because of what we won't fund through the public sector because legitimacy needs to happen in a different way. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I cannot amen enough this idea of needing to find simplicity on the other side of complexity. One thing that spending time working on complex systemic poverty will teach you is, I suspect that most of our desire for simplicity is because we actually don't want to have to understand the problem. Right. Uh, and simply can't understand the complex systems dynamics of some of the problems that we're working on, as opposed to the simplicity that comes from, I understand this so deeply now that I can make it simple for you. Right? Um, and much of, I think, our failures in the, okay, much thanks, Frank. Much of, I think, our failures, uh, especially in, in, in the poverty world, come from the fact that we lack things like complex systems dynamics skills. We don't really understand what's going on in that black box. We know there's a lever in there somewhere and we push on it, but we don't really understand how those things all play together. So anything that invites us to stay in that complexity and find simplicity on the other side is important. And frankly, I think this love of metrics that have to do with the dollar force us heavily towards that simplicity before we understand the problem. And I'll come back to that. I'm probably going to sound, I don't know, somehow socialist or something by the time I'm done complaining yeah, about our love affair with yeah, the dollar, yeah, yeah. right? Um, th so let's go right there. Enthusiasm for the bottom line. We do, in fact, need bottom lines, but it's a very dangerous thing outside of the private sector to have the same enthusiasm for the financial bottom line. And, and I think there are a couple of reasons of that. And so I think you're right, Mark, that we need to temper <laughs> that desire for our financial bottom line with things like legitimacy and support. And in a minute, I'll come back to a heavily, heavily negotiated sense of what social value is. And we spend a lot of our time, in fact, negotiating in the back end what the acceptable outcomes are going to be, how many widgets you're going to get out of this government department or this nonprofit organization, where, in fact, I've come to believe the hard work and the long work is negotiating what we think social value is in the first place. And so one of the things you said at the beginning, Mark, was often people who are enthusiastic about a bottom, bottom line for government don't like it so much when it happens. Nobody likes to be to find out they're failing. Well, I, I, I agree, and yet people particularly don't like to find out they're failing when somebody's using a different set of metrics than their own and says, ha-ha, you're failing because I like the dollar, right? When you're saying, okay, but I like long-term change in health for this family, and I'm actually not as interested in, if, if frankly, if one of every five dollars falls off the table, but we get there in the end versus four of every five, five of every five dollars doesn't, but 30, 40 years from now, we're still wondering why we haven't broken the generational cycle of poverty. I'm not sure we've chosen the right value structure. 
I'm really, really not. But it's so easy to follow the metrics that follow the dollar that it becomes a shorthand for a longer-term theory of change. And I think there are some things here that offer us the beginning of an, of an alternative. How am I doing on time? Can I say a few more things? Yeah, sure. Okay. All right, so um, this, uh, this entire idea of public value as well as legitimacy and support I think does come in the end from a negotiated context. One of the things that was interesting over the last few years about working on systemic poverty in the African-American Boston community, which is what we were doing in Grove Hall, was Everything had a different perspective and we negotiated everything. We spent time on the ground every day. What is important to you? What outcome is it that you want? Um, what do you value for your family first? And not only was that important, but in fact, most of the time, the things that we assumed were just flat out wrong. Um, and so, uh, Bette Midler had that old quote, oh, let's stop talking about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? <laughs> um, most of what we do on a customer satisfaction and an ask the client from an ask the client perspective is really just, well, what do you think about me? Given that this is what we're gonna do, given that these are the outcomes that we think are important for you to achieve, given that this is how we think you ought to be in pos positioned in society and what you ought to value in your positioning in society, how we doing? How do you feel about that? Well, there's like 72 givens at the beginning of that that may or may not be of value for the population that we're talking about, whether it's a for-profit uh, customer, whether it's a, um, somebody that the government is serving, or whether the nonprofit sector is serving that person. We seem to get this on the international relief and development side in a way that we don't seem to get it across the board here in the United States. We don't think of our citizens in the way that we serve them in the same way. And if we had that kind of a negotiated set of um, discussions about value before we started, we could build a very different scorecard. Financial would probably fit lower in it as well, but we could have a very different scorecard. And I would offer that it's a charism or a gift of the nonprofit sector who is not or which is not burdened by the same level of need for legitimacy, authority, fairness, justice, et cetera. That didn't sound right. Yes, it did. But you know what I'm saying, yes. I hope. <laughs> That's something that the nonprofit sector could bring to the table to provide support to the public sector. So rather, it's nearly impossible for a government body to try to negotiate that kind of discussion. But a nonprofit sector taking smaller slices can, and a government body is actually capable of aggregating those discussions over time. But what that means is that the heavy work, the heavy lifting is done up front. By the time you build the scorecard, your sweat equity is already in there, not in how we're going to technocratically measure this down on the other end. All right, so Tony wants me to wrap it up. I'm just going to stop here because I had like 72 other things that I wanted to say. But the very, the very, sort of the very last parting shot is Scorecards aren't good at patience. A scorecard approach is not a long play approach. So one of the ways that we can think about this, I mean, you, you build your scorecard, you're adjusting it every six months. It's for a strategy that you can see three or four years out. Um, in agile technology development, one of the things that they do, this is where you, you develop technology on a sprint cycle, three to four weeks against a two to three year epic, right? Or a four to five year epic, which is this is overall in the end, at the end of the day, what we want this software to be able to do. We might need to think about a long-term theory of change epic uh -huh. and then short-term scorecard sprints. Yeah. And there's a lot that we could take from that field with this kind of, and I think there is real value to the introduction of this legitimacy and support perspective. There we might be able to start getting somewhere. Thank you. Um, 
Thanks. I just have a few comments to make. This is, so, you know, I was reading Mark Moore case studies before I was elected mayor, actually while I was district attorney, and then so I applied everything Mark told me to apply and had several tens of thousands of people kind of come through Indianapolis or the Kennedy School, and kind of like Tony, I just told them what Mark told me, and they <laughs> thought I knew what I was doing, and then I'm now ended up critiquing what Mark Moore thinks, so this is confusing. Mark and I are teaching a course together, too. I don't know if any of our students are here with Jort, and so I, I, I do my part of the course, and then Mark says, well, here's, what, here's really what he meant to say, so um, let me just make a couple uh, really quick uh, comments. Um, because uh, I think and teach a lot about uh, uh, and operate under the strategic triangle. So first, so you know, I really think uh, let me see Bill Bratton Friday actually for yeah. breakfast that right. that uh, Comstat was a remarkable um, idea that changed the way local and state government works. And it's Comstat, City Stat. There's a stat program almost everywhere. And um, at the same time, Mark, I kind of think that it really is simplicity on the wrong side of complexity, not, not on the other side of complexity, right? Because we now know that measuring performance relentlessly is the thing to do. When I was deputy mayor of New York, you know, in order to make the point, I scrolled all of our metrics across these big video screens in the, in the mayor's bullpen. So if you came in to meet with the mayor, you had to see what your, what your performance was. But there were so many of them, and they were disconnected, actually, to this kind of uh, deeper uh, conversation about what the definition of public value. So I think it was, I think it's important and it's an iteration of Comstat, but I, I'm fearful that it's on the wrong side of your complexity line. The second is I, I do think that there's a great opportunity actually to accomplish the things in Mark's uh, sophisticated uh, evaluation for the following reason. I think that we are a little stuck on the evaluation of, of simplicity because up until now uh, we were, um, forced to measure inputs more than outputs or outcomes. The, the, the process of gathering the data to analyzing the data to figuring out the complexities of kind of what's driving what um, made it very difficult to do this at the sophisticated level that Mark has mentioned. And so therefore, we, you know, it's better to measure inputs than nothing. Uh, and often, if you measure inputs long enough, you can convince yourself they're really outputs because they become kind of the focus of the mission. And, and now, I think, actually, data analytics, big data, and, and the like, we, we can move forward in another step. Third. Um, I think some of the problem we have in the definition of public value is that value is created across the verticals, right? Value is created horizontally, but we measure vertically, right? We measure in the transportation department, we measure in the police department, we measure in the child welfare department, we measure in the blank. And yet, uh, if we really want to concentrate on the public value the way Mark thinks about it, we're going to be measuring across the enterprise, let alone with the community and the community satisfaction issues. Well, now I think we can actually look at data and look at issues uh, across those verticals in ways we couldn't do before and even virtually get people together without having to reorganize government every time we do it. So, so I'm, I'm encouraged about the uh, opportunity now to actually have the processes of government uh, catch up with uh, Mark's thoughts. Uh, next, I'm, I think I kind of end where, where you, I think I kind of come where you ended, which is I think the m most important thing is doing this, right? Because once you, once you start out the measurement of public value, you have transformed the organization because everybody's going to disagree about public value. They're going to disagree about the rankings and they're going to disagree about kind of, you know, what, what percentage should be this and what percentage should be that and what's the really return on investment and the like. But once you've got this conversation about public value, the organization has changed, right? It has changed from providing homeless shelters to stopping homelessness, right? It's changed from um, processing Medicaid claims to, pu to public health, right? And, and the like, and however you would rank those. So, so I, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not deterred 
by uh, the perfect um, and being the, I am deterred by the perfect being the enemy of the good, right? I think that if we get to the good in the process, we've, we've, uh, come, a, we've come a, a very long way. And finally, um, you know, I did, I've done a lot of this, and, I, and, and I've never done one of these right. Um, right? You know, I, I can read the Bob Bain stat program stuff, and I can apply the Mark Moore public value stuff. And, and whatever I measured as a mayor, deputy mayor, district attorney, I always got too much of it, right? And it was never quite what I meant. Um, but it was always better than what I had done before I tried it. And so I think if you look at this kind of messiness that Mark has put into these uh, thought processes, they are a roadmap, and it's a more achievable roadmap uh, tomorrow than it was yesterday. And if we can create a dialogue around that, we really advance the definition of public value in a very substantial way. And much of my career I, uh, and success, what such as it is, I owe to Mark, so it's, I'm, 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 I'm terribly glad to be here saying everything I heard him say is correct. <laughs> This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.